did. Oh, I did at the end, man. I'm drunk. Standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 192 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am still reeling from the Primark and Greg's collaboration. <laughs> what? <laughs> Sounds like the classiest thing. Talk me through it. Do you eat it or do you wear it? Hannah, I don't want to tell you how to live your life. <laughs> No, genuinely, is it a food shop or is it a clothes shop? It's clothing, it's clothing. But I assume if you're wearing a Primark Greg's collaborative sweatshirt that has on the sleeve, it's a pastry thing. And you're eating a sausage roll, vegan in my case, thanks very much, and it spills onto the jumper. You, I mean, it's, it's, it's almost too many collaborations. Yeah, well, and that will definitely happen if I do that. 100% totally. I will spill it onto the jumper. Good news for your feet, though, Hannah, because you could be wearing a pair of Greg's Primark sliders and they're easy wipe are, clean. Are they shaped like sausage rolls or something? I don't... <laughs> I, I'm still failing to understand. Do they exist? Is that a real thing? Yeah. Oh, it makes you look like you're either going to or coming home from a shift at Greg's, basically. How does it not have a name? Like a portmanteau name? Like Grimark? That sounds like music I wouldn't listen to. <laughs> Yeah. I tweeted my horror, basically, I'm not going to hide it, my horror at this being a thing, and someone very proudly sent me a picture of their socks, which they had got from the new range. Wow. God, can you imagine what Sausage Roll socks smell like? Again, I don't think they've used actual food, Hannah, but I love that you're stuck on this. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, by the way, listeners, is wearing a hat in the shape and smell of a Scotch egg. No, I'm just like, I'm just like I'm on the greatest catch again. I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and Eunice stole my view. That was such a good tree, wasn't it? The one where all the birds... All the waxwings went, yeah. Yeah. Where will they go now? Somewhere else, I know. Somewhere else that I can't see from my window. Yeah, I'm quite quite sad. I was was ringing my mum to check that she wasn't going out or doing anything stupid, and I heard this just phenomenal crack, and I thought, I'm not going to look and see what that was, just in case there's a... You know, my roof has blown off, but it was uh, the tree outside my house just giving way, dying in the street. So sad. I do feel quite sad about it. Mm. I've been looking at it out of my bedroom window for like 15 years. Maybe you'll get more done. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Oh my God, can you imagine if it happened in lockdown? I've had literally nothing to look at. (laughs) Nothing. I'm Jen Offord, and on Saturday, my brother told me he didn't know what Borsan was. Hmm? You just do a French shrug. Huh? Was that huh? a specifically French yes. shrug? Yes. Yes. <laughs> he thought that the advert, I can't really remember how we got onto this, but the main sticking point for me was that he thought the advert was de pain, de verne, de poisson. And I was like, that's fish, Michael. <laughs> he said, I know, but like you have your you have your wine, you have your bread and you have your fish, don't you? I was like, no, you have your and you have your cheese, mate. That's what you have. The French aren't famous for their fish in the same way they're famous for their cheese either. Or their Borsan cheese. And I was having a conversation with him about it. He claimed never. He claimed to have never heard of this. And I was like, we definitely had it, like, in the 90s. It would be something that my parents bought for, like, a party, but no other time. Just for parties, like, just for best, best cheese kind of thing. Like a Viennetta Exactly, cheese. Hannah. That is exactly <laughs> what we went on to talk about, a Viennetta. So, like, things that in the 90s you thought were classy, but actually, like, they're filth and they're really cheap. Yeah, and you realise that Borsan is basically just spreadable halitosis. 
I mean, I actually just bought some off the I back of quite the like conversation. It's pretty nice. It's pretty and nice. And it was, when we were growing up, I went to a friend's house and they had it. And I was like, what is that? It's magic. And my mum would only buy it on very, very, very special occasions. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But what I will say, having bought some the other day, is I think your bog standard Morrison's roulade would be absolutely fine. It, it basically does <laughs> the same thing. You're welcome. Anyway. Coming up, I speak to comedian, writer and women's aid ambassador Maddie Anholt about breaking the cycle of coercive control and her new book, How to Leave Your Psychopath. Sobriety coach Veronica Valley talks to me about booze, why we drink it, why our culture is so soaked in it and how to manage our relationship with or without it. I round up all the latest comings and goings in women's sports in this week's Journey Off the Blocks and in Rated or Dated, Bitches Be Crazy as we watch... Crazy! Crazy <laughs> as we watch 1997's The Crucible. But first, honk if you understand the importance of nuance. It's <laughs> time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Like Big Jet TV but with slightly more screaming into the sky. <laughs> did you watch only in Big Jet TV? I did, but I had an interview Friday, which took up quite a lot of my time, and I had my tree drama, which took up quite a lot of my time. Fair enough. And so I didn't get to see as much of it as I would have liked, but yes, I did watch some. I watched a glorious three-minute snippet, and I tell you what, for a channel that doesn't usually get as many viewers as it was getting on Friday, they were thriving. They were having a lovely time. I think they're the perfect mix of something that's incredibly mundane and British and the language that goes with that and the high drama of the weather. When they said things like, oh, here comes Big Daddy. It was just <laughs> hilarious. Talking of here comes Big Daddy, Mickey. Oh, in- indeed, it's Big Dog, isn't it? Yeah. Let's talk empleomania. The desire to hold office or wield power, whatever the cost. Thank you, Susie Dent. And surely a frontrunner for the new middle name of our Prime Minister, Alexander Boris de Piffle Johnson. (laughs) In Johnson's case, the cost is, of course, never to him or his. In his new Living with Covid plan, announced on Monday the 21st of February, Johnson lifted all COVID restrictions in England in a process that starts later this week. So as of Thursday, people who test positive for COVID will no longer have to isolate by law. Free testing for the general public ends as of April the 1st. April the 1st. I know he makes it almost too easy. With a pack of six lateral flow tests set to cost 20 quid. Woohoo! That's a lot of money. In it. And also as of April the 1st, people infected with COVID won't be advised to stay at home, with Johnson saying, we will encourage people with COVID symptoms to exercise personal responsibility, just as we encourage people who may have flu to be considerate towards others. And yes, there is something pretty galling about Johnson telling anyone they need to rely on people's sense of personal responsibility. Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty and Chief Scientific Advisor Patrick Valance were, as you'd maybe expect, less gung-ho, urging people to keep taking precautions such as isolating and wearing masks while infections remain high, which, I should point out, they still do. On February the 18th, which is the most up-to-date figure I can get my hands on, there were 11,223 people in hospital with COVID. But, as Whitty says, the rates have been going down steadily now for some weeks. Some of those people will be people who are in hospital with something else that have caught COVID. Indeed. We have, according to Johnson, emerged from the teeth of the pandemic. How Johnsonian is that as a phrase? Yeah. 
and his announcement was greeted with glee by a swathe of Tory backbenchers, adding fuel to the fire that this announcement is smashing timing when it comes to Johnson saving his own hide. Moreover, if the people shouting, all hail the conquering hero, are a list of Tory bellends, it is unlikely to fill most of us with confidence. And also, for all of Johnson's rhetoric about freedom and choice and personal responsibility, those are words for the healthy and wealthy. Jobs are good and jack, as long as you're not clinically vulnerable to COVID or caring for someone who is. As long as you're heating and eating are covered, thank you very much, so there is 20 quid in your back pocket for tests. As long as you're not one of the one in six workers in customer-facing sectors in the UK that get no statutory, 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 it's hard, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That get no statutory, oh, statutory, (laughs) (laughs) that get no statutory sick pay. I can't say statutory. As long as knowing that sick pay, if you get it, won't kick in until day four, doesn't leave your already dire finances in even dire straits. But, and this is a huge but. There have been huge social and economic costs to people outside of the pandemic that lockdowns and restrictions have exacerbated. Not least a huge rise in depression, anxiety, psychosis and eating disorders since COVID hit. Millions of patients facing dangerously long waits for treatment of all kinds on the NHS. A rise in domestic violence, a rise in alcohol abuse. Negative effects on a generation of kids that are, at the moment, unquantifiable. Christ, the cost of living crisis. These aren't small fry. These are different pandemics and the Chancellor isn't looking likely to chuck tens of billions at any of them. I've no doubt that Johnson's decision is highly political and at the same time deeply personal and that it's to save his own sorry sack of shit. But the facts are there. The excess death rate is running below the seasonal norm. Covid-related hospitalisations across the entire UK are falling fast. While there should absolutely be more support in place for those who need it, the same as it ever was for Tory governments, it might just be time to wind down the pandemic response. Yeah, I saw a lot of people yesterday saying, oh, Sir Boris Johnson, you telling me if I've got COVID, I should go to work? Very clearly not saying that. He's not saying that. Mm. And to be honest, the person I saw saying it was the university academics, and my guess is they'd be all right if they didn't go to work, you know, that their wages would probably be covered, you know, rather than, say, for example, someone who's a Deliveroo driver not being able to go to work. I do think the testing, the cost of the testing thing, why that can't be, except perhaps there'd be a difficult system in place to set up, why it can't be means tested so that people like you and I pay for tests now, but people who work in a care home, for example, and get paid minimum wage and probably need to be tested really regularly, don't have to pay for theirs. Surely it would fall under a similar system as the prescription charge yeah well i mean that's one that's already established and in place so why the fuck not yeah i mean it's a lot of money it is i did did have a little look yesterday to see how easy it was to get a test now and of course they're all gone because everybody's panic stockpiled i wasn't going to get one for myself but i thought i'll have a look and see whether the panic stockpiling has happened and it clearly is although they've had moments where they've been out of stock before but i absolutely that doesn't mean i don't agree with what you've just said a lot of people will be like i'm going to get them in before april the first i mean so it's over mick it was done did you enjoy it (laughs) i'm still uh, mulling over everything that happened and i'll send my report via sue gray if that's all right with you or chip advisor you know (laughs) either's fine more inside than i thought three stars (laughs) (laughs) it's a pub where my friend got stabbed Uh, r.i.p terry not for me three stars (laughs) (laughs) so Oh, Canada, right? 
Do I burst into some sort of South Park song? <laughs> I don't know the words to O Canada. I only know the South Park Blame Canada, which may or may not be more fitting to what you're about to say. Yeah, I've been avoiding talking about this for a few weeks because it's pretty polarising and also really hard to get a clear picture of what's actually happening there, given reporting bias on both the left and the right. Mm-hmm. But things in Canada have deteriorated pretty substantially in the last week, so here goes. I should probably start with a little explanation, shouldn't I, for anyone who's not been following events in America's hat? A new vaccine mandate for truck drivers came into effect in Canada in mid-January, meaning that any driver who isn't vaccinated and crosses the border into America would have to isolate for 14 days on their return, which I think we can all agree makes working as an unvaccinated driver untenable. Yeah. How many drivers are we talking about? From almost all sources I can find, it seems close to 90% of Canadian truck drivers are vaccinated. Well done, lads. Which is actually higher than the national figure of 80%. I'm hoping there's a long-distance Clara in there as well. So, you know, well done, lads and lasses. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's an expression more than a a gender-defining thing. Protests against the mandate, which began as it came into effect, took two forms. The first is what I think can fairly be described as a peaceful but incredibly loud and pretty inconvenient occupation of Ottawa city centre. (laughs) Sorry, that's a great description. Uh, Peaceful but incredibly loud and pretty inconvenient. I'm pretty sure I've been described like that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the word peaceful, I mean as in it's non-violent, but peaceful does sometimes refer to quiet, doesn't it? It is nothing but noise in this place. The second was a blockade at the Ambassador Bridge in Ontario, one of the busiest crossings from the US to Canada. It takes about 25% of all cross-border trade. So when I say pretty busy, really busy. That's hefty. And that caused considerable supply chain problems in both countries. That second protest was cleared after a week by police, and it's easy to see why. The first, well, that proved a lot more difficult to deal with and undoubtedly experienced mission creep, protesting not just the mandates, but all kinds of dissatisfaction with Justin Trudeau and his COVID policies. It attracted a lot of support from the American right, from high-profile figures like Elon Musk, and from around the world, with similar protests taking place in New Zealand and France, among other countries. So what have I got to add to the melee of voices chatting about it? Let's start by saying I've got a lot of sympathy for anyone living in Ottawa. Having been there, I can tell you that city centre is pretty small. And I can imagine the sheer volume of noise coming out of it is a pain for anyone with kids or pets or a job or indeed anyone who just likes to listen to birdsong or silence and not fucking truck drivers honking their horns all the (laughs) live long day. But... I've also got to say that it's very easy for middle-class desk jockeys to support vaccine mandates now when they've probably not given a single thought to the lives of truck drivers who until a few weeks ago were just the people that we expected to continue working unvaccinated throughout a pandemic so that as many people as possible could still have supplies while they stayed safe at home. Mm -hmm. As you know, I am vaccinated and boosted, as is Mickey, as is Jim. And I would suggest that everybody else does the same. Indeed. But, and here's the nub, 
a knob no one ever seems to take into account when discussing the vaccine status of the sundry occupations that meant you had to venture into the real world at the height of the crisis. Being at risk of COVID repeatedly for the best part of two years will mean that they have a very different relationship with and tolerance of risk than people like me. Yep. So, how has the Canadian government responded to the crisis? Hold my coat, Neil Diamond, in the jazz singer. Here comes Trudeau. <laughs> oh, God. The Canadian Prime Minister refused to meet with protesters. In fact, he's mostly refused to discuss the crux of the problem at all, instead taking a very competitive tone. Competitive. Combative. 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 Fighty. Fighty. (laughs) (laughs) I've said it all the ways. I'm sure some of it will be right. (laughs) Taking a very competitive tone. Competitive. (laughs) I don't know what to say. (laughs) (laughs) Calling. (laughs) Calling the protesters. Sorry, I've gone. (laughs) Competitive. Combative. Uh, I'm going to leave that in. (laughs) Calling protesters at various times racists, anti-Semites, Islamophobes and transphobes. So the full gamut of hate there. (laughs) And last week he took extraordinary measures, otherwise known as the Emergencies Act, invoking what can only be described as draconian powers to shut down the protest, which it's worth saying was not illegal up until that point. Is that when the hashtag, hashtag blackface Hitler started trending? I think it was, yeah. How draconian? Well, anyone thinking of sending any cash to support the protest can, wait for it, have their bank accounts frozen. Ooh, under his eye. Hundreds of people have been arrested and trucks have been towed. And while I'm not sure this has actually happened yet, officials also threatened that dogs would be confiscated and if not collected after eight days, would be considered relinquished. That's like, I don't know, it's a bit like, and we'll we'll take your dogs. It just feels really weirdly tacked on. Yeah. Ottawa police have also said they will be attempting to identify and track down everyone who took part in the protests in order to, and I quote, follow up with financial sanctions and criminal charges. So to be clear, if you took part in what was then a legal protest and went back home, your actions have now been retroactively deemed illegal and you will face consequences. Ah, Canada, land of freedom and liberal. (laughs) What? So what to make of it? Needless to say, I think Candice Owens' rallying cry for America to invade Canada is a bit much. (laughs) Calm down, Candice. But it does worry me, not so much for the people of Canada, because, hey, you do you, Canada but because Trudeau's actions are now a blueprint for the rest of the West. Mm. And if you are one of those people who is concerned about your right to protest being curbed, as many people in the UK are, then you should be concerned too, regardless of whether you support Canada's truck drivers. And if you're cheering Trudeau on, well, I'd like to say that I won't argue your case when the time comes for your views to be considered verboten. Although, you know what? I will, because I'm good like that. Yeah, that's... Pretty fucking scary. Yeah. Mm. It really is. Yeah. It's really, really authoritarian and draconian. And it 
has allowed the American right to really make hay with it. Yeah, they're having the time of their lives, the American right. You spoke about how it sets a blueprint for other people in the West, other leaders in the West, and absolutely. And you hinted that over here, our rights to protest are being curbed Mm. in the new policing bill. But also, it undermines anything that liberal, in inverted commas, democracies, again in inverted commas, can say on Putin and what's going on there. Or China. Yeah, totally. Or, as I should say, totalitarianly. It really worries me. It seems to have been mishandled quite extraordinarily. But also it worries me that it's been really hard to get any clear, actual information. I mean, the Canadian media have been having a ongoing and very public spat with the New York Times because the New York Times said that the police that went in to clear it were armed. And the Canadian, some members of the Canadian media said, what are you talking about? You're not even here. And the mm-hmm. New York Times says, we are here. We do have a reporter here. And I'm like, this is so unedifying, really. How, when the right is making hay with this, is the left allowing themselves to get caught up in this ridiculous scrap <laughs> between each other? I mean, luckily, that isn't reflected anywhere else in society. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> But you would think that when your actual civil liberties at risk, that's the time to actually say, hey, do you know what? The infighting has to stop. Yeah, it makes me feel right combative. Do you want a bit of good news, Mick? Yes, please. Well, the bad news is I've not got any. Oh. I mean, I'm sure there is some good news out there, but I couldn't find any that sustained my interest. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> Apparently the Isle of Man doesn't have bird flu anymore. I mean, that seems great news, but I was finding it difficult to make jokes out of. So, I thought we might have a chat about Hank the Tank. Oh, he sounds sexy. Yeah, I mean, what's that? Is it a tank? Is it a member of a crime gang? Is it a wrestler? No, 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 and no. It's a morbidly obese bear giving the Californian authorities the runaround. Go, Hank. Have you seen a picture of him, Mick? I have seen a picture of Hank the Tank. and He is can... quite the chonker. He is. He's a massive bear, and yeah. he's named Hank the Tank for his size and not because he uses caterpillar tracks. Although they look like they come in handy. He's a black bear and weighs about 500 pounds and is apparently, quote, readily identifiable due to exceptionally <laughs> large size. I mean, no shit. A black bear generally tops out at around 300 pounds. Hank is suspected of being involved in an at least 28 break-ins in the Lake Tahoe region. So, yeah, possibly a member of a crime gang. <laughs> he is apparently, and again, I quote, extremely food habituated (laughs) and again i say no shit Mm. i actually googled what food habituated means and it's you know it it means kind of what you think it would mean like he's got in the habit of eating certain shit foods but it sounds to me like a kind of i've got big bones (laughs) type excuse (laughs) you can see him chucking into his pizza going it's not my fault i'm extremely food habituated (laughs) i think i'm extremely food habituated mookie I'm crisp habituated. I think he is too. (laughs) Authorities' attempts to send Hank back to his natural habitat have so far failed. Apparently, it's easier to find leftover pizza than to go into the forest. (laughs) Or at least that's what Peter Tierra, a California Department of Fish and Wildlife spokesman, told the New York Times. Evergreen quote there. I reckon you could put that in almost any story (laughs) and it still works. Why is Justin Trudeau behaving like he's behaving, Mickey? Well, because it's easier to find leftover pizza than it is to go into the forest. Why has Boris Johnson ended COVID restrictions now, Hannah? Well, 
Because it's easier to find leftover pizza than to go into the forest. When you say it enough, it sounds almost like a philosophical Confucian style statement, doesn't it? And yet it's also categorically true. (laughs) (laughs) More news as it happens. And indeed, more news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where I reveal how Hannah fared in the swimsuit round of the standard issue job application process. I feel a bit ill at the thought of that. (laughs) A bit chilly, I imagine. But as you know, it is rule of thumb in all job applications, regardless of the role, and the perfect, probably the only way to judge a candidate's confidence (laughs) and elegance. And by that, I mean arse and tits. Look, I see you shaking your head, tutting, muttering something that sounds like objectification of women at work has no play in this day and age. But just because the Miss World beauty pageant ditched the swimsuit round in 2014 doesn't mean a Naples-based security company can't, in 2022, stipulate that a candidate for a receptionist job be, quote, female, no older than 30, a fluent English speaker and have their own car and a sunny character with an attractive appearance and send in a full photo in a bathing suit or similar. Who doesn't want a receptionist with cracking confidence and elegance, eh? For, and to be honest, this almost bores my piss more than the perv request, €500 a month. Is that it? For 24 hours work, which is €5.20 an hour. Please. I mean, maybe that's why they can only wear such small clothing. I don't know. The advert posted on several specialised job sites by a Naples-based security company. Well, what said specialised <laughs> I uh, can't comment. It's easier to find leftover pizza than to go into the forest. <laughs> <laughs> was swiftly reposted with the incriminating line removed, but it wasn't swift enough to avoid getting a lot of people's backs up, which really ruined the line of their bikinis. Mm. The problem of sexism persists, said Chiara Marciani, the Labour councillor for Naples. There needs to be much more work done on gender equality. There are so many issues that need to be addressed, especially in a city like Naples, which has a very low rate of women in employment. Andrea Orlando, the Italian Minister of Labour and Social Policies, has asked inspectors to investigate. Shall I tell you a story about when I used to work in an Italian restaurant? When I was, I'd say, in my early 20s, I was living in Sydney, I was working in an Italian restaurant down at the the rocks you know where the rocks are i do so, yeah um, worked with loads of italian men my age and above and when we weren't busy they used to like to stand at the in the doorway and shout things at girls who were like walking past and one of them was gay and one day i came in and he was in the doorway shouting along with the rest of them and i said aurelio i don't understand it you're gay what are you doing harassing women in the street and he said hannah i might be gay but I'm still an Italian man. <laughs> oh, oh, that's funny but awful. Oh, yeah. mm. wow! As when I told you what story I was covering, as you said to me, it's easier to find leftover pizza than it is to go into a box. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joined by comedian, actor, writer, women's aid ambassador, and author of the new book "How to Leave Your Psychopath." Maddie Anholt. Hello, Maddie. Hello. Hello. Good pronunciation of the name. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We've just been talking about Dutch pronunciations. Hard to do, it transpires. Very. So, Maddie, looking at the front cover of your book, you have got props from Melanie Brown, 
a.k.a. Mel B, a.k.a. Scary Spice. I mean, as a child Mm -hmm. of the 90s, does it get any bigger than that? No. When that came in, it was the first quote I got in the book. It really set the bar high. I mean, there is no higher than that. And I've tweeted her since being like, making Spice Girls jokes. (laughs) She hasn't responded. (laughs) Which now, I wish I hadn't gone down that route, but I have. Teresa Parker, the brilliant Teresa Parker, who's head of communications at Women's Aid. I just sent her a little email and said, do you think any of the other ambassadors or anybody would read my book? And she said, leave it with me. Mm -hmm. And then a mere 24 hours later... She went, oh, Mel B's reading it. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) Mel Mel B, scary spice, Mel B. She went, yeah, she doesn't really do that anymore. So it's Melanie Brown. I was like, yeah, yeah, cool, 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 Melanie Brown. And so, yeah, I got that wicked review quote from from Melanie Brown, which was outstanding because obviously she's a patron of Women's Aid, but massive backer for what we're talking about. To start off with, can you please tell me a little bit about your book, How to Leave Your Psychopath. Yes. So How to Leave Your Psychopath is the essential handbook for escaping toxic relationships. And I will most likely come back to that word toxic because it's a deliberate choice. I think if I was to say controlling or coercive or emotionally abusive relationships, probably wouldn't sell as many copies because (laughs) people will go, that's not me, as I did. I'm not in that. I can't relate. But when you say toxic relationships, it's a very Instagrammable yeah. word, right? You're like, oh yeah, I dated him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I tried to do with this book, essentially, it's it's my experiences of being in a decade's worth of controlling relationships, but it's also a bit of a reflection on how I got out of them and how I broke this cycle. Because you know, ten years is a hell of a long time to be dating men who destroy you you know you come out of that and there's really nothing left of you and so I kind of was faced with this decision that that was enough and so this book is my research I spent probably the best part of about four years working with psychologists and experts and therapists going through what was happening to me why it was happening to me and how to make it stop and so it is the kind of big sister guide to getting out of shit relationships and the relationships that destroy you from the inside out. So I I say in the book, you know, I'm not talking about the guy who like ogles your best mate and doesn't hang up the bath mat. Mm. I'm talking about the ones that seek to destroy your life. Mm. And if you've had dalliances with them, or you know someone who has had dalliances with them, you will know the difference. So yeah, it's a it's a kind of funny-ish, I hate to call my own work funny, that's awful, isn't it? But, you know, <laughs> light-hearted, witty look, which seems kind of crazy, at the world of abuse. It, well, I mean, it is a funny book. It is written in a very humorous way. Obviously, you're Thank a comedian. You. I'm kind of interested, because this is quite a serious topic. Why mm. did you want to look at it in that way? Do you think it's sort of more accessible or is it just yeah. you know your general vibe maddie i'm gonna cut that i'm too old to be saying shit like that don't cut that that's good i like that i think i use vibes in the book which actually now i say it out loud it's awful you're right but anyway yeah relatable accessible all of those words i think before the pandemic i wrote an hour comedy mm-hmm. and i just was doing like work in progresses and what i began to realize is oh my god i'm not having to push these shows for the first time ever, they're, they're selling out. And not only are they selling out, 
people are coming up to me afterwards and saying, oh my God, I've got to talk to you about something or I've got this story. And so I thought, oh, I'm onto something here. And, you know, obviously I don't need to speak about Hannah Gadsby, Nanette, you know, these kind of people who have used comedy as a foundation to talk about difficult, uncomfortable mm. subjects. And I think that when I was trying to heal and come out of the kind of, you know, really dark place that I was in, the only books that I found sort of useful to me were, or the only books available really were like very dense psychological textbooks. Yeah. I say in the book, I say throughout, I'm not a psychologist. I've never claimed to be a psychologist, but I do have 10 years experience in the field. <laughs> so my vibe was, oh my God, I just said it, my vibe. <laughs> You're not nearly 40, Maddie, it's okay. Uh. My, my feeling was a bit like Dolly Alderton, everything I know about love, that kind of, you can pick it up, you can read it, it sticks with you. It's so relatable that you, it gets under your skin. And so, yeah, that's, that's kind of where I was going. And comedy is the perfect platform to do that with. I was interested that you said that you'd been locked in this cycle, I think is how you referred to it, for a decade where you'd been in relationship after relationship with controls, with two L's, mm. like troll, mm. as you mm-hmm. call them in the book. <laughs> That's like a catch-all term for like narcissist, psychopath. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned Mel B earlier because... She would be from her public persona, you know, the the heady days of girl power and scary spice, which she doesn't do anymore. Thanks for pointing that out. She would be the last person you would expect to find in a controlling or abusive relationship. So can we start, please, by addressing the myth that it is sort of meek or somehow lesser women that wind up in these relationships? Mm. I mean, yes, it's completely the opposite. And I think that the notion that it's vulnerable women with their heads hung really leads us to this victim-blaming mentality that it was their fault. And it plays into the toxic shame of survivors that Mm. they let it happen. Because, you know, I point out in the book that even throughout those 10 years and, uh, you know, now I'm not meek, I'm not uh, like quiet and reserved and I'm outspoken I'm confident I'm very positive and so that was like a fundamental thing for me to understand and when I got my head around it I was like oh that's taken such a weight off and what I began to learn was that actually controls controlling personalities types, narcissists psychopaths by their very nature are looking to accrue more tools to manipulate more people and so Actually, they are far more interested in prey who have, you know, things that they don't have. If they Mm -hmm. are compassionate, for example, if they are confident, the studies that I pull out in the the book on this, that actually it is the, the women and the men sometimes, but the women, let's talk about in this, who are open to excitement, open to adventure, love other people that are perfect prey because the control will just mimic all of the things that they don't have in order to manipulate more people. Often you hear that, and it's such a myth, as you say, it's such a myth that these are weak women in the first place. It's certainly what one of the pull-out quotes of the book, or that has been pulled out so far, is this idea that what you put up with at the end is not what you would have put up with at the beginning. I think one of the key things to look at when you're in a relationship that is destructive in this way, coercive, whatever you want to call it, 
is one word really and that word is patterns so patterns both in the relationship and, and patterns in yourself so let's let's talk about the first one patterns in the relationship when I learned about the cycle of abuse which I talk about in the book it took away a shed load of this toxic shame that I had mm-hmm. for letting it happen as as I thought and Basically, I I worked with the psychologist and we were chatting about the chemicals, the literal chemical dependency, the hormonal helter-skelter, as I call it in the book, of what happens when you're in these relationships that you start in this, you know, honeymoon period. You have all of the lovely, Mm. you know, oxytocin, all of this dopamine, and then slowly some tension gets introduced and you've got this feeling of, walking on red hot coals and you're starting your shoulders around your ears you're thinking am I paranoid is it just me is it in my head you start getting really insular that's when you get things like cortisol things like that the stress hormone Mm. and then from there once you once you've dealt with that you get the big rage the big explosion it's like it's fight or flight and then you come back round to reconciliation and calm so if you look at the hormones that are at play here it's no wonder that you keep staying because you are battling a chemical dependency. So there's those patterns. And then there's the patterns in yourself too that need to be addressed. I God, I kept asking myself, why do I keep going for this guy? Why does it keep happening to me? And yet wasn't really prepared to look at it. And it wasn't until much, much, I mean, years later that I realized I took joy in being the lead role of fixer. I loved to fix broken men. Women who are in controlling or abusive relationships you know that you can break the cycle you can get out of them what if you're already out of the relationship with them but say as a lot of women will be tied to that person through for example children or Mm. property or a a pet you know I don't have children yet but every other woman or person I spoke to who'd been in one of these did have children Mm. with them and did have a house and And so that was like a a very late but huge chunk of the book that I had to go into. One of the key words that I kept hearing was understanding boundaries. Now, it's very particular on the perpetrator. If the perpetrator is legitimately going out of their way to destroy your life and you have children with them and you're fighting through the family court system, then the family court system, as everybody knows, is a pile of wank. It's awful. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't, in the book, rose tint and say, there'll be so many friendly judges who just got your back, because that's not the case. And it is difficult, but it is much better than being in a relationship with them. So I would say setting firm boundaries and saying what are the consequences are of those of that person breaching those boundaries and making sure that they're boundaries for you and your mental health as much as they are for your situation. That post-separation time is the, one of the most vulnerable for victims. Mm. The rate of femicide in that time is, is absolutely outrageous because you are at your most vulnerable. More likely, you've been isolated for however many years you've been in that or months or weeks And so assembling yourself a team of people who could help you through that, who will hold you accountable for communication, who will be there to make sure you're safe is vital. You don't have to deal with it on your own. You know, there are people around who can help, even if it's that you ring the National Domestic Abuse Helpline or you go on Women's Aid live chat and you just say, I'm going through this and I don't know what to do then they will go, okay, here's a charity that can help you. Here's these people. This is a trained person. 
I think one of the things that's really key here is, and you touched on it at the start, is sometimes it's hard to recognise that you are that person in that relationship. Also, it can be so insidious and you do find yourself being like, can I prove that? Am I being paranoid? Like, if I explained this to someone else, would that stand up or would they say, nah, you, you, I think you're yeah. reading too much into that, mate? So what do you do if you are doubting yourself in that way? It was actually, that really hit me then when you said that because I remember so many times, and I, I say this in the book, I remember so many times going, just fucking hit me in the face. Like, I actually want you to do it. And not because I'm, like, sadistic, but because I wanted to look in the mirror and go, oh, I can see a bruise, now I get it. And when it all came to a crashing, you know, I don't want to say climax, but it was awful when it all sort of shit hit the fan. They sent the Metropolitan Police domestic abuse unit over. And I actually thought, oh, that's such a shame. It's because the police are underfunded. So they've had to just send these people, even though it's nothing to do with my situation. I genuinely was like, why are you here? Why am I talking to you? And then I still didn't get it. And then... Months later, when I went to crisis counselling, she said, let's talk about the domestic abuse. And I said, it wasn't domestic abuse. And honestly, when I tell you that still so many years after now, Mm. so much therapy, so much healing, writing goddamn book on it, I still have moments now. I mean, that is how powerful this abuse is, where I go, am I making it worse than it was? And then something will remind me. And something will trigger. And one of the things in the book is Biderman's chart of coercion. It's a prisoner of war techniques basically used. And they are absolutely pound for pound exactly what's used in a domestic abuse situation. And when I read that list, I I call it like a hug of belief. Honestly, I reread that list hundreds of times because it was the first time that I was able to, in black and white, go, oh, my God. I knew it felt awful and I knew it was destroying me. But you're taught that it's all in your head. You're taught that you're histrionic, hysterical, paranoid on your period. You're taught all of these things by them. And so you believe it to your very core. It it takes years to unpeel those and go, actually, I do believe myself. And it did happen. And in the book, one of the biggest things I think I put it in huge font is I believe you. And sometimes just somebody saying that, if you ever know someone who's victim to them, just saying, I believe you, is so powerful. With that in mind, that it can be difficult to spot these things. If anyone who has been listening to this, their ears have pricked up and they've thought, mm, that sounds familiar, or mm. perhaps you're listening to this and you think about a friend who you might be a bit concerned about, what are some of the classic red flags to watch out for in terms of coercive control and domestic abuse? The one that we've already spoken about is patterns, having a look at the patterns of, of what's going on. Is it that? And and when I say like patterns or cycles, it, they're never set by a what? They never go, oh, it's every three months. We're coming up for a big one right now. You know, they can be micro or macro. So if you're an outsider or if you're in a relationship that you're like, are there patterns to what's happening? Do they lose their shit and you feel shaken and intimidated? And then quite quickly after that, there will be a gift. Very rarely will there be an apology, but there will maybe be a big gift or a dinner or something to go, shut up. I love you. So just be quiet. I mean, that's that's the nature of hushing your victims. So I would say the second one being isolation. So my circle shrunk very quickly over those years. So are you on the outside looking in going, 
it's really weird because I've got this feeling about this person and I, our communication is just suddenly cut off and or are you a family member and they they don't talk to you in the way that they used to do or are you in that relationship and suddenly maybe they say things like your friends don't have your best interest at heart or god your dad feels like he needs to ironically control every part of your life why don't you back off a little bit it can even go down to the fact of like your pet doesn't like me I think you should get rid of your pet because he doesn't like me and it's making me feel uncomfortable. And there's a chapter on intuition and gut instinct. Uh, fundamentally, I say this. If you're asking yourself the question, then you're right. Because I looked for proof everywhere. Like I read so many articles. I was like, is this all in my head? Uh, is this actually a perfect relationship? But It's me. I'm the problem. I'm the common denominator. But the truth of it is, if you're asking yourself the question, if they're womanizing, if they're cheating, if, they're, if it's abusive, then the answer is yes, it is. The relationship that I'm in now, that has never been a question. And it's the first time in over a decade that I'm able to be in something where I go, oh, it's meant to be really easy. Oh, you don't lose shitload of weight because you've got intestinal problems because... You're so tense and depressed. Like, oh, God, my shoulders are always down in the room and when I walk into a room and I can speak to them whenever and they're not just going to lose their shit at me. Oh, this is what it's meant to be. And I never thought I would get there, but I have. There's multiple, there's more red flags than that, but don't look for reasons why it's not abusive because that is so easy to do. As you say, you don't have to suffer in silence. There are places you can go to for help. You are an ambassador of the charity Women's Aid and you can find out more information mm -hmm. about the help you can get if you visit womensaid.org.uk. If you don't feel that you can look up Women's Aid or Refuge or something similar on your laptop or phone, I believe that you can now go into a pharmacy and ask for help. If you go into a pharmacy, Boots are doing it, but most pharmacies then look for a poster and on that poster it will say, ask for Annie, A-N-I, and they will know what you're talking about and they will take you into a little side room for a chat and they will actually help you out. So yeah, have a look for those posters everywhere. That is a new government initiative. There's also, if you're being financially controlled, there's a rail to refuge scheme whereby they will pay for train tickets, they will get you to a refuge. So don't feel like I don't have the money, I have no resources, I can't get help this is specifically what these charities and initiatives are for maddie your book how to leave your psychopath was published on the 3rd of february by bluebird pan mcmillan it's very funny as well as being very interesting and useful i recommend it even if you do not feel that you are or have been in the cycle of an abusive relationship i think it's well worth just knowing a bit about these things for future reference where can we find you on the socials to keep up to date with what you're doing on twitter there's a russian bot who has my handle so i've had to put a little <laughs> uh underscore <laughs> which is at maddie underscore and maddie with a y and then on instagram i'm i'm at maddie and and i'm always tweeting some shite brilliant i look forward to <laughs> seeing you tweeting some shite on the internet uh, maddie <laughs> thank you so much for chatting to me thank you Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Veronica Valley, sobriety coach, fellow podcaster and author of a couple of books, including her latest, Soberful, Uncover a Sustainable, Fulfilling Life Free of Alcohol. Veronica, hello. 
Hi. Nice to have you. Listeners, to be clear, going into this interview, I drink alcohol. And although I drink much less than I used to, I still overdo it sometimes. And I've definitely, on more than one occasion, questioned my relationship with alcohol. So I'm very much going to be using me as the example in my questions to Veronica. I have no argument with people drinking. My mission is to blow up the faulty belief system that alcohol equals fun, sober equals boring, because that's not true. Good. Right. We've done our (laughs) disclaimer. Because our relationship with alcohol is fascinating. And I've Mm. got to say, if you think about it for even a nanosecond, it's really fucking weird. There's this substance that is unquestionably bad for us, famously addictive, and yet we're kind of encouraged and conditioned to look forward to it. And if you don't like it the first few times, you know, you soldier on, you persevere till you get to like it. So I guess my first question is, why do we drink? It is fascinating. And alcohol is by far the worst and most lethal drug by 10 times. You know, it's not even close. Mm -hmm. We have normalized abnormal drinking in our culture and very specifically the British culture. So this is the whole premise of my work and what I do. We have been conditioned by our culture, by the media and by our peer groups that alcohol is the best vehicle to have fun, excitement, belonging, connection, relax, reward yourself and get romance and sex. Mm -hmm. Now, who does not want those things? (laughs) I'm in. And if you think about the other thing, it was never presented to us that not drinking alcohol was an option, right? Exactly. You're going to get a driver's license when you grow up, you're going to get a job and you're going to drink alcohol to get all these things that I've just described. Those are just givens in our culture. Unless you were of a particular religion. I mean, I was getting in pubs when I was 13, back in the late 80s. I couldn't wait to get those things because it was about freedom. It was this entrance into this amazing land I wanted to be part of. And I never questioned it, as I'm sure most people don't. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, what nobody tells us is that there is an enormous cost And that cost will increase as you age, but that cost is hidden, minimized, rationalized, lied about because of the belief system that we want to go to the land. It's like, yeah, like I was hungover for three days and yeah, oh my God, I said these really embarrassing things and yeah, I threw up in the taxi and that was hilarious, but it doesn't matter because I had so much fun. In my work, in my experience, when you deconstruct it, it all begins to fall apart. Here's the thing. I got sober when I was 27. I got sober because I had to. I had a a problem with alcohol and drugs. There wasn't really any other choice for me. And I was not happy when I realized that I would have to give up entrance to that land of fun, excitement, belonging, etc. I mean, I was 100%, 100% new that I was never going to go dancing again, was never going to wear lipstick, certainly was never going to get laid again. I mean, that I was going to have this <laughs> yeah. just very, you know, sort of dull, kind of grey, you know, just sort of plodding along existence. And I wasn't happy about it, but I accepted that reality because I had so many mental health problems from my drinking, I had really bad anxiety, I had really bad depression and panic attacks, which I now know is extremely common for people who drink too much. And I'm not even talking like really excessive amounts, just moderate drinking can bring anxiety and depression and all that kind of stuff. So then imagine my surprise 
nine months, 12 months, 18 months, two years later, where I'm like doing all the things sober and having the time of my life. And I'm going to gigs and I'm going to, I used to go to the V Festival, going clubbing because I love dancing and I like flirting with boys and I love wearing high heels and, and going on holiday to Spain. And I did everything sober and it was better. Mm-hmm. I felt like I'd been kind of conned in that nobody had said, you can drink and sometimes it will be fun and sometimes you'll have a great night and sometimes you'll connect with people and blah, blah, blah. But there's always a cost. There's a, there's a really massive cost and you have to weigh up. Are you getting a good return on your investment? When I discover I don't need to drink to have any of those things. And, you know, I was, I've been sober for almost 22 years and I, I always tell people if this wasn't fun, I'd have been drunk 21 years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. So my drinking balance sheet... I know without even really thinking about it that while I've had some truly glorious drunken nights with great friends, the bad times, the bad decisions that have led to bad relationships, the hungover darkness that descends upon Mm. me massively outweigh those good times. As you explain in the book, though, alcohol is basically the the photo of the McDonald's burger, right? Uh, It looks amazing, but we don't ever get what we're sold. And booze has been Mm. writing checks it can't cash. For decades. So how much of a role does advertising, marketing, pop culture play into our big love affair with booze? That's a great question because I don't know if you've been watching the new Sex in the City. It's called Just Like That, but everyone's calling it the new Sex in the City because that was such a cultural phenomenon back in the 90s. Mm. And, you know, there we were in, you know, I'm, I'm there in Kingsland, Norfolk, thinking I'm like Harry Cosmopolitan. Yeah, half a pint of lime. <laughs> but, you know, that's how in our heads we wanted to be. Like, we wanted to look like that, the way they drank, and it never showed any consequences. I mean, that's the really big thing. In our media, we only show, if there's like a drinking story, like if it's a rock bottom story, you know, it's like a poor alcoholic story. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, all we see is Carrie Bradshaw characters in just having alcohol but nobody shows the cost so I found it really interesting that in the reboot Miranda stops drinking there was a scene in the Sex and City in the 90s where Miranda gets too drunk on a date and what her date takes her home and leaves the phone number for her local AA and she's outraged Mm -hmm. they kind of didn't really go anywhere with the story I mean she stopped drinking that was it but I'm glad they did it because that's the consequences of being 55 (laughs) you just can't look like that and drink that way without there being consequences so she stops drinking and they drink alcohol-free champagne when they're out I'm glad they did that because it was at least kind of some you know Hollywood type of realism there you know she wasn't like getting DUIs it wasn't that falling over you know it was like it was more kind of typical on the outside she looked like she was fine but on the inside she wasn't The other thing that obviously gets the message across that booze is the lubricant for all our fun times are adverts and the marketing that come from booze companies. And while, you know, we're not stupid, we're not sheep, you look at those and go, that's what they want us to think because they want us to buy that product. What I found really interesting, and I heard this on your podcast, was that alcohol firms would lose £13 billion if drinkers in England, and it isn't stop drinking, it's if they stuck to the safe drinking that the British government recommends. Holy shit. 
that's huge. First of all, the alcohol industry in the UK is self-regulated. Professor David Nutt has really eloquently talked about this in that the way that alcohol companies present, it's a small group of people that have a problem. Everyone else is fine and need, and wants to enjoy a drink. What's the big deal? And it's actually the other way around. Like, come on, you know, have you been in London on a Friday night? Mm -hmm. You know, that's not a small group of people. It's also the definition of what's a problem. The way that alcohol companies have misrepresented that, it's like, well, you know, if you are in the gutter, homeless, drinking every day, drinking in the morning, clearly that's a problem. But I only drink three or four nights a week. Clearly that's not a problem. I have a job, I have a mortgage, I go to Spain on holiday. That's why my clients look. On the outside, it, we've checked the boxes. We've got the mortgage, we've got married, we've got a car, we go on holiday twice a year. We've checked the boxes, so therefore we are okay and we therefore can't have a drinking problem. And that's the magic smoke and mirrors that people use to obscure, actually, those three or four nights that you are drinking, you are subpar the next few days, you don't want to read stories to your kids at night because you're just tired and cranky at that point. You're raising, as a woman, raising your chances of, of breast cancer by 15%, which is very significant. Yeah. Your mood is low for four or five days because alcohol is a central nervous system depressant, so you're going to feel depressed. The way that we hide all of that, but then it gets to this conundrum. So many of my clients get to where they're like, I don't want those things. I don't want to feel that way, but I want to drink because I want the things that it brings. And people spend 10 years in that dance. And it's so powerful, isn't it? You say in Soberful, I grew up in the UK and did years of self-destructive drinking there. And that line made me laugh out loud because I was like, Haha, don't we all write of passage? And then I immediately thought, shit, clearly that is not right. But the level of drinking in our culture, and I am talking specifically about British yeah. culture here, isn't healthy. If you look at our drinking rates and then you look at our antidepressant prescribing and also look at breast cancer rates in younger and younger women. I don't think that those things are not connected. Mm. You know, there's a huge cost. But you know, for me, it's the loss of potential and opportunities. It's all of that kind of stuff. I mean, and then there's the whole relationship between sexual assault and, and alcohol abuse and all of that kind of stuff. The cost is enormous. Do you know what? I feel like I learned a lot from your book and the majority of it actually wasn't necessarily drinking related because obviously quitting alcohol or changing our relationship with it mm. is a lot to do with psychology the big one for me I've got to say and I mean a total eye-opener is how very limited willpower is given yeah. it's something that so much pressure is put on when it comes to for want of a better phrase making better lifestyle choices we need a much bigger boat than willpower, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, I see that a lot in my communities is that, you know, I, I tried really hard or I just got to stay strong or it's not anything to do with that. Willpower is a muscle and it gets fatigued. Mm -hmm. All of this is about what's in our subconscious mind. It's all of the programming that we need alcohol. So, you, you know, you set off, you're determined, you're not going to drink, you're absolutely never again. And then, you know, it's Tuesday and you have a really bad conversation with your boss who just really pisses you off and you're just fuming on that for days and it's going round and round in your head and that's what we call a resentment scenarios about how you're going to show him or how unfair it is and blah 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 that the resentments are what I call the free drunk and then it gets to Friday 
and someone says, are you coming to happy hour? And you're like, yeah, I deserve it. Like, mm-hmm. I freaking deserve it. Like, there's nothing that we want more than the free drunk. Whereas I can go and drink and get drunk and it's actually not my fault. Not my fault. If you had a boss like mine, if you've had the week like I've had. So we drink because of how we feel. And what so many of us have done, and this is what I did, is I defaulted to alcohol to manage my emotional life because I didn't have any tools. I didn't know how to deal with resentments or frustration or fear, which was a big one. Yeah. I didn't know how to, I had social anxiety. That's a really, really common one. I didn't grow up in a family where that stuff was role modeled. It wasn't taught to me. And so I defaulted to alcohol as a tool to deal with my emotional life. And I think that that's really, really common. We just, it, it's like a shortcut. Bad day at work, have a drink. Good day at work, have a drink. Lonely, have a drink frustrated or resentful have a drink the big thing is that we lose is we don't emotionally grow in the way that that is possible for us and being who we really are that's kind of the whole point alcohol takes so much from that Mm -hmm. yeah okay I guess a question I need to ask you is do you think it's possible to have a healthy relationship with alcohol so certainly I can explain what that looks like yes please People who don't have a problem with alcohol think about alcohol the same way that I think about sandwiches. So I might think today I'll have a sandwich for lunch, that's nice, I'll eat it. Tomorrow I'll have some soup and next day I'll have a salad. And then at the weekend I'm at a party and a plate of sandwiches goes by and I think, oh, I'll have a couple of those, that's nice. Then a bit later they go by and I'm like, no, I'm good, thanks. That's literally how much I think about sandwiches. When you have a problem with alcohol, you do four things. You drink, you think about drinking, you think about not drinking, and you recover from drinking. And that takes up a lot of bandwidth. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole thing about dry January, the only people who do dry January are people who are worried about their drinking. People who have a healthy relationship with alcohol, who drink like I eat sandwiches, they don't think about dry January. It's not a thing. It just doesn't, wouldn't occur to them to do that. So, yes, a lot of people have very healthy relationships with alcohol. There's two trends that I'm seeing that really bother me is presenting alcohol as a parenting aid and as a wellness product. And that's all about just trying to bring people in to rationalize that their drinking is okay and all of that kind of stuff. So to answer your question, yes, lots of people do. And that, you know, that's totally appropriate. But the group that doesn't is far larger than we think it is. There's another brilliant line in Soberful that made me laugh out loud, and that is, if you are gluten-free, no one pressures you to eat bread. People don't say, here, have a breadstick. Just one won't hurt. And it's true. I think a lot of people's response if a pal stopped drinking would be to wonder why that pal was suddenly the designated driver every time. And as you you cover in Soberful really beautifully, not want to deal with it because it makes them reflect on maybe their drinking. So, Even if we're not thinking of giving up drinking or changing our relationship with alcohol, how do we help or be a good friend to someone who has decided for whatever reason that they're going to ditch the booze? That's a really big thing. And it's really just about having more awareness. When somebody stops drinking in a friendship group, you know, because we tend to drink the same as the people around us. So if someone stops, it really upsets the apple cart. Because if you're saying this doesn't agree with me or, uh, you know, it's not good for me, 
and we drink the same. Well, what does that say about my drinking? And it makes people very uncomfortable. Um, what they want to do is just have things go back to the way they were, because that's just easier for everybody. Mm-hmm. Because culturally, I think the British culture is very invested in the belief that alcohol is the best way to have fun. When you stop drinking, what pe- people don't hear that. People hear that I have volunteered to never have fun again for the rest of my <laughs> life. And people are like, oh, mate. <laughs> Why would like, you do that? <laughs> yeah, like, mate, you know, come on. Like, they're heartbroken for you. I mean, who would do that? I want being alcohol-free to be like how being a vegetarian or gluten-free is. In the 70s, if you were vegetarian, good luck. I mean, right. maybe you could get an omelette somewhere. But people didn't get it. You were weird. That was a hippie thing. But freaking everyone's dairy-free, gluten-free, nut-free. And you can go pretty much anywhere, be catered for, have some lovely food. No one bats an eyelid. But if you're alcohol-free, people think you have two heads still. And I would like us to get to a point where being alcohol-free is just... That's, it's, it's, for some people, it's a lifestyle choice. Uh, I meet lots of people who just don't drink because they've seen very clearly, wow, that's a really high cost. Doesn't look like fun. I'm having a great time without it. No, I don't want to do it. Or, you know, people have stopped drinking because they just realized the cost is too high. We've got some ways to go, but I feel like it's there is some changes beginning to happen as more and more people realize that alcohol has lied. So I guess if someone in your life is cutting back or ditching the booze, the best thing to do is just not make any sort of deal out of it. Veronica, before I let you go, if someone is listening to this and it's made them thoughtful about their own relationship with alcohol... How would you recommend they start turning that thought into action? You know, I think the number one thing is community. But you feel very alone when you start having, you know, thinking this way. And and it does feel like that way. It feels like everybody around you is drinking normally and that they're all fine and you're the one who's not fine. So I think the number one piece of advice is find a sober community. And there's tons of them now. I mean, I have a group, Sober for Life, where we have a, people from all over the world. But there's, you know, it used to be 20 years ago, it used to be there was only AA. And lots of people didn't feel that fitted them. There's tons of stuff online now. And, in per, you know, there's like uh, sober running groups, sober book clubs. Finding a community of people is really important because... That connection, having fun, socializing is really, really, really important when you change your relationship with alcohol. That's how we begin to dismantle that belief that alcohol is the best way to have fun. When you begin to have experiences having fun sober, that's what strengthens your sobriety. So finding community um, and getting probably getting a little bit of help because I think most people, when they've realized they have a problem, have defaulted to alcohol to deal with emotions and you kind of get sober and realize you're a bit of an emotional teenager. Mm. And so getting some help from a coach or a therapist to develop some of those tools that just make life a lot easier and a lot more pleasurable. Soberful, the book is available now. It certainly made me go, oh, have a little pause for thought. Don't know what I'm going to do with that yet, but I'm certainly having a little think. I mentioned at the top that you've got a podcast also called Soberful. Where can people find that, please? Yeah, so the Soberful podcast is on all platforms. I think if you just Google Soberful, the book and the podcast and the website and all of that stuff will just come up. Do you do the socials? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Veronica J Valley. And then I have a free Facebook group called Soberful as well. Amazing. Veronica, thank you so much for chatting with me. Lovely to be here. This was great. Thanks, Mickey. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid.
Jenny Off The Blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time in the week where we sweep across the ice in glory as we discuss all things women's sport. And of course, I'm talking about the great British curling team. I knew they'd do it for us. The men's team won the silver and the women's team, headed by Eve Muirhead, took home the gold as the Winter Olympics came to a close at the weekend. Up the curlers. Obviously, we congratulate the guys, well done lads, but we're here to talk about the women, who also had a better result. Yes! Team Muirhead sort of squeaked through the group stage of the competition with four defeats from nine, and things were not looking great for them. But as other results went in their favour, they made it past Sweden in the semi-final and they crushed Japan 10-3 in the final. So it's fourth time lucky for 31-year-old Muirhead, who won a bronze at the 2014 Sochi Olympics, but until now has failed to improve on that. And this is after undergoing surgery on an arthritic hip in 2018. Massive congratulations to Muirhead and her team, Vicky Wright, Jen Dodds and Hayley Duff. I'm sure we'll talk about an otherwise slightly disappointing Winter Olympics another time. You may also have seen announced in the last week that the brand new international women's football tournament, the Arnold Clark Cup, is going to be available to watch for free on the FA Player. You can register for that now over on the FA's website. And yes, I do also think it's slightly unfortunate that the tournament hosted right here in England, where the Lionesses will compete against Canada, Spain and Germany, is named after a businessman. But as the Arnold Clark Twitter account told me, that's his name. It can't help it. So I, I guess it can only be a good thing that businesses want to invest in women's sport and that it doesn't sound like a brand of panty liner. Also announced in the last week, the IPC Cricket World Cup, which will start next month in New Zealand, has increased its prize money from 200000 in 2013 to £2 million in 2017 when England won the World Cup. And this year, which has been delayed by Covid by a year, it will be £3.5 million. The winning team, Claire Connor, former England women's captain and managing director of women's cricket at the England Cricket Board, tweeted, will take home $1.32 million, which is double the amount that England took home. She said, like most things, she was sure that this announcement would polarise opinion. But cheeky Claire. Anyway, what do I think about it? Well, last year's men's 2020 World Cup winners took home $1.6 million out of a prize fund of $5.6 million. So, you know, we have a way to go yet, but for now, begrudgingly, I'll call that progress. So there you have it. That's all for me this week. Short and sweet, but a trio of good news stories. I'll be back next time with more women's sport. And you are welcome. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, which film had us off to Sheffield to watch the snooker this week? (laughs) Well, Hannah, this week we watched 1997's The Crucible, a reworking of the 1953 Arthur Miller play about the infamous Salem witch trials slash communism slash actual footage from a One Direction gig. Those bitches being crazy, right? Fucking hell were they crazy! Anyway... (laughs) Directed by Nicholas Heitner, the film stars swoons thrice Oscar-winning Daniel Day-Lewis as damned man John Proctor. Yeah, Poldar, get your heart out. I will come to the shirt, don't worry. (laughs) And Winona Ryder as Abigail Williams, the young woman who puts in train a series of events that end in the deaths of more than 25 people by hanging, uh, pressing, 
or just like in jail after more than 200 people were accused and 30 found guilty of witchcraft. Miller's original play about this was written as a metaphor for Senator Joseph McCarthy's campaign to unearth communists in the US government and other institutions between 1950 and 54, though perhaps that is a little less obvious in this film. Miller himself did actually write the screenplay for the film, for which he was nominated but did not win an Oscar. Really? Yeah. Interesting. And so the plot, one morning in 1692, a group of young women enabled by slave Tituba, who always knows about witchcraft because she's from Barbados, don't you know? They head out into the woods to throw sage and frogs in a pot and wish for boys to fall in love with them. Abigail Williams, niece of local reverend Samuel Paris, takes it too far and really changes the vibe when she dashes a chicken's brains across a rock and smears the blood on her face, wishing for the death of Elizabeth Proctor. The reason being, she used to work in the Proctor household, but she got kicked out after Elizabeth realised she was making the beast with two backs with husband John. (laughs) Abigail, quite rightly, is taken by the depth of Proctor's neckline, and she wants him back. (laughs) Plunging. Plunging. No one else has got a plunging neckline. They're really cashing in on that Last of the Mohicans vibe there, weren't they? Anyway. It is very much when does a neckline become a belt. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But I'm not mad at it. It's fine. Anyway. When does a shirt become a cardigan? Yeah, that. <laughs> Sending the group into what can only be described as some kind of rapture, the girls properly lose their shit. That's until Reverend Paris stumbles across the group, causing them to flee, some of them naked by this point in proceedings. But the Reverend's own daughter, Betty, collapses unconscious. And when they get home, Betty and another villager, Ruth Putnam, both appear unresponsive. Fearing foul play by Satan himself, Reverend John Hale of nearby Beverly is called to investigate witchcraft, causing the girlies to worry that their early morning jaunts will be discovered. Abigail does the only sensible thing and blames Tichaba. But when Tichaba confesses to avoid being hanged, Abigail wants in on that sweet, sweet faux witchy action and claims that she too has been afflicted, and a barrage of accusations are levelled by the group against other women they claim to be practising in the dark arts. Hoping that her newfound influence in the village might endear her to the object of her affections, John Proctor, Abigail tries to get him to finger her in the woods. We've all been there. But brooding and weird-sounding, fresh from his early life in Suffolk slash Rada, and being facetious here, Day-Lewis actually attended Bristol Old Vic, Proctor tells her to jog on and hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. More accusations are made, trials commence and shit gets really fucking real after an imaginary yellow bird does some pecking. Abigail's a bellend throughout, but it backfires spectacularly when Proctor himself, defending his wife of Abigail's accusations, gets re-fucked off with it all and denounces God, leading to his own arrest for witchcraft. So Miller's play did have some historical inaccuracies in it, some of which were deliberate, including the respective ages of Abigail Williams, in fact 11 or 12 at the time, rather than the 17 she is portrayed as in the play and the film, and John Proctor, who was actually 60 when he died, so don't know if we'd be lauding those plunging necklines on So wearing him. a cardigan? Wearing an actual <laughs> cardigan. And a really high belt, like yeah. Simon Cowell trousers. But before we start talking about how it was a different time in the 1690s, there's also no actual evidence of the pair having ever met before the trials. And Miller added this to give Abigail some sort of motivation, because otherwise, yeah, bitches be crazy. (laughs) 
One of the most interesting theories I found whilst looking into this was that now Professor of Behavioural Science, Linda Caporell, who wrote an article in the 70s, hypothesising that accusations, mass hysteria and indeed hallucinations around the Salem witch trials could have been caused by... Now, I may say this wrong. Oh, is this the egret? Ergotism. Ergotism, that's it, yeah. So it's a kind of poisoning by fungus that grows on rye and it contains a toxin that acts like a bit like LSD, basically. However, historians and scientists have disputed this theory, claiming that it doesn't explain why the group of accusers were predominantly young women and girls, because ergotism would have affected the entire community, they said. Anyway, on the history, it's all quite complicated when you start looking into it. The Proctor clan... Because, in fact, John Proctor had 18 children. 18. 18 18 children. children. Still, I'd have nobbed him if he looked like that. (laughs) Basically, once you start reading about them, they start to look like they've come fresh from Jeremy Kyle because there's all sorts of grievances cited against them. There's some dodgy neighbours, there's some Asbo shit going on, there's some arson. Anyway, what Proctor was not, however, was a witch, a crime for which, spoiler alert, he was executed by hanging and posthumously exonerated of... The film itself, going back to that, did not do very well at the box office and it made $7 million back on a budget of $25 million. But it was well received. Yeah, it's bad, isn't it? I was so surprised by that because I remember it being like a big film at the time, but apparently people weren't interested at the time, which, I don't know, we'll probably talk about that. Anyway, it's well received by critics and it was nominated for a handful of awards, but only Joan Allen, who played Elizabeth Proctor, and Paul Schofield as absolute Bellend Judge Thomas Danforth took any home. So, I have never seen this film before, and I didn't study the play either because we did a view from the bridge at my school, but I think I must have read it because it does feel very familiar. Mick, I think you said you'd not watched it before. Hannah, I'm not sure about you, but the thing that struck me as I was watching it, well, there are two things, but first of all, is how relevant it remains in so many ways. Oh, yeah, we talked about that, like, when we were doing uh, A Streetcar Named Desire, the second most relevant film. Yeah, I had seen this before a couple of times, and I have seen the play a couple of times, and I do think it is an absolute fucking giant of a play. I think it's incredible. I will not have any bad words said about it as a play, as a film. That's totally different. I have also been to Salem. Oh. Yeah. And she's been burned as a witch. And yeah. <laughs> I've got a photo of me and my mum standing outside uh, Salem. Which and I, you can't see it on the podcast, but she does wear her shirts preposterously low cut. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. I am genuinely in a cardigan. Uh, just to ref Hannah's joke at the top, I have seen The Crucible at The Crucible Ooh. in Sheffield. Wow. I have also seen some snooker there too. Uh, yeah. I've wow. S- I know. It's, it was all go up north. I haven't seen this film before. But I have read the play and I have seen the play in various guises. And I agree that it is a giant of a play. I did a little, really, when you said Miller got nominated for an Oscar for his adaptation? Because to me, part of the problem, sorry, just like wetting my powder, part of the problem with the film is it feels incredibly stagey. I don't feel like he'd done very much to it to make it filmic. Because the critics said that they felt that it was made for the screen. Well, the fuck do they know? I can't agree with that. Because it's overwrought, and we'll get to that bit maybe later, theatre feels like it's natural home. Theatre is overwrought. Mm. Theatre is about, like, raw emotion and tearing at your clothes and stuff. So I actually think it isn't particularly 
I'm not saying it's a bad film, but I'm saying it's a way better for play. I'd, I'd rather watch it on stage every single time than than watch it in, on film. Agreed. Even if it does have Daniel Day-Lewis scything in it. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody hell. Sorry. <laughs> Jen got massively distracted then. It's easily done when talking about Daniel Day-Lewis's shirts. Anyway, sorry. Going to your historical point, mm. Jen, it's not a historical play. It's not about... No, it's about McCarthyism. It's about McCarthyism. but So I don't think historical accuracy matters. Well, it wasn't a criticism, it was just a fact. But I was just saying, as someone, me, who usually is bothered by historical accuracy, in this case, it doesn't Mm. bother me in the slightest. It's a relevant one as well, an endlessly relevant one, because every generation, and sometimes more than one in a generation, has its own witch hunts, you know, and indeed... Witchfinder Generals. I've got to say, not a huge fan of the film, although I am a huge fan of the play, but the film just made me want to watch the episode of Inside Number 9 when they're witch hunters, because it's one of my favourites. And Jen, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's half an hour that, I mean, unless you watch it four times like I would, it's half an hour you should definitely spend in front of a BBC iPlayer. It's joyous. And having seen that fairly recently, having watched it again and then watching this, I was pissing myself laughing a lot of the time when I don't think I was supposed to be. Waiting for Ruth Sheen to pop up and say, when my husband was at shit. (laughs) I did see Goody Partner dancing with the devil and the mouse. I have to say, I read a book last year by A.K. Blakemore called The Witches of Manningtree, because Manningtree is quite close to Harwich. Yeah, so, like, Matthew Hopkins and the Witchfinder General and all of that stuff is, you know, just stuff that you learn about at school and stuff. Uh, Well, lots of people learn about it at school anyway, because it's quite an interesting period of English history. Anyway, um, I just want to say it's a fucking brilliant book. It's absolutely hilarious. The way she writes Matthew Hopkins is just... Chef's Kiss, please read it. And also, yeah. Harwich does get a mention in it as well, and not in a flattering way, which I also appreciate. I do like a bit of witchery kind of stuff. I find it quite interesting. The other main thing, right, that struck me about the film, and, it, well, the story in general, is that, like, given that no one ever believes women about anything, let alone young women, let alone hysterical women, why the fuck does anyone believe this group of young women who exemplify like the they they are the exact trope associated with why people don't believe women basically because it's confirmation bias isn't mm. it it's they want there to be witches and they are telling yeah. them there are loads of fucking witches they want a reason to keep the women in their place and the young girls are giving them a way of doing it i just thought it was mad it's absolutely mad. And also there is like infectious madness as a, a sort of a, as an idea, you know, the, the, I mean, it happens amongst young girls, like as One a direction socio, Well, exactly that, but also mass fainting, things like that. Contagion, social contagion works amongst young girls more than anything else. But also it does work in crowds because that's the thing. You look at it and you're like, this is, this is insane. And I hate to use that word because I know people don't like it, but this is fully insanity. And that's why it's so brilliant, because it encapsulates that, that absolute just how can't they see what we can see so well that you can look at, like I say, McCarthyism, how terrifying McCarthyism was, like, for those people. But also, like Mickey says, happens over and over and over and over again. It becomes mob rule, doesn't it? It's Mm. absolutely mob rule. And it's interesting what you said about keeping the women in their place, because I know... 
obviously men were hanged at Salem, but the ratio was very oh, yeah. much, it's, I think it was like yeah. five guys and the rest yeah. were women. Yeah. Yeah. Right wing publications sporadically like refer to things as witch hunts like every now and again, which clearly mm. aren't because there's the whole like power dynamic that we talk about on the podcast quite a lot. Mm. But the other thing that occurred to me, apart from like the misuse of witch hunts, was Twitter. Twitter was the thing that kind of like sprung to my mind while I was watching it, and the mass hysteria over various things on Twitter. Twitch hunts. Twitch hunts. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah. yeah I mean, totally. listen back to that interview I did with Kat Rosenfeld about what happened to certain YA authors and how they were absolutely torn apart by the mob. It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. Agreed. I don't really have anything to add, but just the the sway. So you see with Mary Warren, who mm. tries to come out of the mob and say, actually, none of this is true. None of us have seen anything. It's just like once it started, it was really hard to back out of it. And in the end, she gets so scared that the only way for her to continue is to go right back into it. They're mm. so mm. powerful. And I think what the film does because it's what the play does is show that really well that even if you want to come out of it if you're in so deep and you risk then being rejected or indeed called a witch yourself then you know fuck it you're probably just going to go straight back in it and go no no sorry moment of madness there i was absolutely wrong these crazy bitches be right (laughs) yeah but i think it even has like it makes really clear why people sign their confession oh yeah well, he says it in it, doesn't he? Did he not clear. think that, like, maybe the yeah. threat of being hung might be enough to make someone confess? Yes, yeah. like... but, but but also, not not just that, but the, like, that whole speech he gives at the end of, this is my name. Like, this is, like, the thing that will go down against my name forever. I mean, McCarthyism was just the worst, <laughs> the worst thing, like, ever to, to just erupt out of nothing and just ruin people's lives and... Yeah, he is like a proper figure of evil, Joseph McCarthy. I can't imagine that history will ever judge him as anything other than a complete monster. And I think that comes across in this really, really clearly. So I wondered if either of you had any thoughts on... Because obviously Daniel Day-Lewis, by that point, he'd already won an Oscar. He'd obviously been in Last of the Mohicans in 1992. Winona Ryder was a really big Hollywood Mm. actress at the time. So there's some big names attached to this. And like Arthur Miller is a big fucking name. Mm. I wondered if you had any thoughts on why there wouldn't have been any appetite for this at the time. 1997. We were all in a really good mood, weren't we? We were like, just yay, loving new Labour. Don't need to. That didn't yeah. happen till May. Just, just listening to D Ream on repeat. Yeah. Things can only get better. We knew they were going to win. That wasn't a surprise. We knew the Tories were on their way out. But I mean, you know, globally across the world, this has done really badly. I just wondered if anyone had. It's, it's all right if you don't, because uh, I don't have any answers. It is interesting. It is interesting. I mean, it's. Arthur Miller is an incredibly famous name in certain circles, but I don't know that he necessarily sort of tickles the taste of everyone who is going to require to go and see that. I mean, it's very earnest and it is very overwrought. I think it's because it feels a bit theatre-y and a lot of Mm. people don't like theatre. Like they just don't like the staginess of something, the melodrama, and it's it yeah. starts at a pitch, and if it just gets higher and higher and higher, 
It would be interesting to, to know retrospectively, and of course we can't, what would have happened if Arthur Miller had put on another production of The Crucible starring these two on Broadway mm. at the time and see if it had, like, set the world on fire or not. Yeah. But obviously we'll never know. I don't really like Winona Ryder. She doesn't do a great deal for me. I just don't really have any strong feelings about her one way or the other, to be honest. I don't know if she's... She's. I thought she's... I have a lot of strong feelings about Daniel Oh, James. yeah. I have, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <What's... laughs> I really like Beetlejuice. She's good in that. She is good in Beetlejuice. Yeah, she is. Good point. I quite like um, Edward Scissorhands as well. And Peter Vaughan is in this, and I bloody love Peter Vaughan. Uh, and that's worth oh, a mention. Oh, and he gets, well, oh, he gets pressed. Mm. Yeah, he does. Also worth a mention, and you've got this coming for you, Jen, how absolutely terrifying children are. Yeah, <laughs> really scary. They're like insects. I can cope with them on their own, but when they're in a pack, they're fucking terrifying. Really scary. Fucking lunatics. It's like a swarm of anything is never good, Hannah. If you've got enough <laughs> to make a swarm then it's going to be terrifying and that doesn't change if they're humans. I think it's more... They're like the tiny hysterical mob and when they're just running from place to place and all doing the same thing, it's Mm. it's overwhelming just watching it, let alone being in it. It did make me not laugh because obviously it did happen and it happened up to much more present day than 1692 that Peter Vaughan's character basically gets his missus in trouble because she's been reading a book. (laughs) (laughs) Giving herself yeah. notions. Yeah. Oh, John Proctor's no hero. I mean, he's always dragging someone outside to give him the lash. He's a bit of a prick, I think. Mm. I don't think he's very... And also, I, I understand there is nobility in, like, not confessing to something you didn't do. Like, I understand that. But also, he does die, and then you're sort of led to believe that his wife is going to probably die as soon as she's had her baby as well, and that this has come about because he won't just go, yeah, it was me. I, I, I do know something interesting about her, if you're from a historical point of view, in real yeah. life. Tell us about Goody Proctor. Goody Proctor. <laughs> so she, you're right, she was given like... Stay um, of execution. Uh, stay of execution because she was pregnant. By which point they decided that this was all a big embarrassment and they were just going to let everybody yeah. out. But because she had been found guilty but was on this stay of execution, she wasn't entitled to inherit from her husband because she was seen as a guilty woman. So she basically, like, lost everything. And they said in it that he had lots of acres of land. It sucks to be a woman. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? And obviously he's no hero because it is very much... I don't think Abigail Williams forced herself on John Proctor. It was definitely a tupping of two people. And, yeah, as she said, classic beast with two backs. There were two backs on that beast, as Jen pointed out, you're right. And, yeah, she's a harlot. I mean, I guess he was a criminal, too, because lechery. But it was very much, oh, I couldn't help myself. It was all her fault, was was his mm. line in this, right? Oh, hang on. I can make my, my Ten Commandments joke here. On, yes, then. come on, Please bit a bit of Bible humour. It's interesting that the commandment he forgot was thou shall not commit adultery when what he was guilty of was coveting his neighbour's ass. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> All in the delivery and that was appalling. <laughs> I think the skirts are too big to actually get any, anyway, any visuals. I'm going to ask you the question, but I have very mixed feelings on this. How do you feel, rated or dated? Oh, absolutely rated. Did you enjoy the film, Because we're Hannah? talking about the film, not the play, Hannah. Nonetheless, I don't think it's aged. 
I think you could make it and it would be exactly... I mean, that's the the beauty of his historical pieces, is that they don't age in that sense. And it looks nice. It hasn't aged. It by by it, you mean DDL, don't you? No, but I mean, it's like some nice, like, obviously they've they've... <laughs> like nice historic scenery what i'm trying to say is i think there's some like effects possibly in it like of the bay i don't know but nothing looks particularly old no i think it's rated yeah it's i mean the story itself is rated but i I didn't have sometimes i say something's dated and yet i had a lovely time watching it Mm. whereas this is rated and yet i didn't much enjoy myself if i'm honest no it is it's definitely a hard watch yeah, oh, that's Agreed. how I felt. I don't think it's dated, but I wouldn't say I had a whale of a time watching. I don't. I don't think I'd be in a hurry to revisit it. But I'd be interested to see a um, a few more buttons undone. Well, obviously <laughs> that. But uh, I'd be interested to see the uh, the theatre, a theatrical production of it. Can I just say, Mickey has sent me a message to inform me that Last of the Mohicans has an anniversary this year. I've never seen it. Why? <laughs> Wow. So, um, look, look out for us sliding off our chairs in November. <laughs> <laughs> Whose turn is it next time? It is my turn. It's my turn. We're going to be watching Tim Burton's Mars Attacks. Hey! Wow. Tom Jones covered in wildlife. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.